Let's, uh, let's pick it up with verse 15. Now, starting in verse 15 down to verse 22, we have a description of the second half of Daniel's 70th seven, or the second half of the tribulation. If we flip back to Daniel chapter 9 and read verse 27, it says, Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, or one seven, but in the middle of that week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate now that seems like cryptic language but basically what it's saying is that in the last period of seven years the 70th seven the final prince of the final one of the fourth empires will make some kind of a covenant and in the middle of that period of seven years he will cause the sacrifices and offerings in the temple to end and he will cause some kind of an abomination and that will continue until the promised destruction of the last Gentile empire that's predicted in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7. Remember here it says, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. It's saying, even until the predicted judgment of God is poured out on this last ruler and this last stage of the fourth empire. Okay? Now, going back to Daniel chapter 24, let's pick it up with verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place whoever reads let him understand then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains now please flip forward in your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 we're going to read starting with verse 3 we will come back to this passage in the future but I want to make this connection now Ah, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thank you, Bob. You knew I was going to the wrong place. No, I didn't. Oh, okay. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. This is anticipating the future time of the tribulation. That day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. That's the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, the blasphemous guy with a big mouth. It says in verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Okay? Now if you go back to Matthew chapter 24, Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, this thing gets into the holy of holies inside a temple that will be in existence by the time we reach the middle of the tribulation. The abomination of desolation is the end time ruler. It's the Antichrist who will enter into the holy of holies and I believe what he's going to do is he's going to walk in and he's going to sit on the Ark of the Covenant, as I've said before, which is a proclamation that he is God. He's taking the throne of God. Pat. What's the 
Well, that, yeah, that's a great question. The temple will either be rebuilt shortly before the tribulation period or after it starts. And some people have speculated, and this is nothing but speculation, but it's intelligent speculation, that the covenant that this end-time leader, the Antichrist, is going to make with the many is going to be a treaty that will allow the Jews to build a temple on the Temple Mount without getting bombed into the Stone Age by the Arabs. Okay, Mary. May I ask a question? Sure. There are no signs. Okay. There are none. Okay. And there will be there will be nothing. Let me put it this way: there is nothing laid out in Scripture that would allow us to know with certainty that we are approaching the time of the tribulation. Bruce. Well, by that same count, we could have the temple being rebuilt tomorrow, and tribulation starts a thousand years from now. Sure. Or we could have the temple rebuilt and have it destroyed and have another one. Right. Yeah. See, uh, uh, there could be a lot of cycles. There could be a lot of false starts. And there have been other people in earlier times in history who were sure that they saw the Antichrist coming. Napoleon, um, Stalin, Hitler. Um, On the same account, until 1948, uh, until Israel actually possessed that land again, mm. you know, it would be tough to have had those events happen as well. Well... It, it would be tough, but not impossible. Hold that thought, because we'll need we'll need to discuss 1948 when we get a little further, and I hope we'll get there tonight. Okay. All right. Well, the point of this discussion: let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. And he goes down all the way to verse 20 and says, "Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath." You don't want it to be in winter because it's hard to to run away in winter. It's cold. You don't want it to be on the Sabbath because if you're a serious Jew, you don't want to go very far on the Sabbath. Verse 21. For, reason is, for then there will be great tribulation, great trouble, such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. The events of this time period, which is Jesus predict, which Jesus is predicting, are going to be worse than anything that ever happened before or anything that will ever happen after it. And he says in verse 22, Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. In other words, if they continued on indefinitely, the entire human race would be exterminated, but God will make sure that that doesn't happen. Okay? Well, that's the description of the period called the Great Tribulation. Notice that it began with the abomination of desolation, and it goes up. To the end of the tribulation and you'll see that it goes up to the end because what follows is the discussion of the very last days leading up to the second coming verse 23 then if anyone says to you look here is the Christ or there do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to deceive if possible even the elect see I have told you beforehand there if they say to you look he's in the desert do not go out or look he's in the inner rooms do not believe it 
For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now the basic argument so far is simply that the coming, the second coming of Christ is going to be an event that is going to be so public and so unmistakable and so visible all over the world that no one will be able to miss it. Okay? You know, just like you can see the flashes of a thunderstorm that's 20 miles away, when Christ is coming back, there won't be anywhere on the face of the earth where you can't step outside and look in the sky and see evidence that he's coming. Okay? Now, I'm, somebody's going to ask me what verse 28 means, and I'm going to skip over it. I have some <laughs> ideas, but they're not very good, and nobody else knows very well either. It's some kind of a figure of speech. Okay? And we can talk about it later. I've written something down somewhere, but I don't remember what it is. Now look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now this verse has caused a lot of consternation. It's not that difficult, actually, if you stop and think about it. Okay? It sounds like the destruction of this universe in preparation for the new heavens and the new earth, doesn't it? It looks that way. Now let me tell you why it's not. The first half of the verse is describing atmospheric disturbances that will occur at the end of the tribulation. The darkening of the sun and the moon. That's predicted in Joel chapter 2. It's spoken of in the book of Revelation. The second half of the verse, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken is not talking about the sun landing on the earth or the Milky Way landing on the earth or anything like that. It's speaking of angelic powers in the sense of Ephesians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 6. It says the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. When Christ returns, what's he going to do? He's going to take Satan and he's going to throw him in the bottomless pit. He's going to render all the demons unable to do their thing for the entire duration of the millennium. That's what the second half of that verse is talking about. It's not talking about interstellar destruction. It's not talking about the destruction of the present heavens and earth in preparation for the next one. Because that doesn't happen for another thousand years. And the key is that second phrase. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. Okay? The powers of the heavens are angelic beings. It's not interstellar bodies that you see through a telescope. Now, verse 30. Then the, sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. I always think of the bat signal. Except it's going to be a bat signal that you can see anywhere, not just in Gotham City. Okay? And people say, how can this happen? You know, if Christ is coming down from heaven, well, what if he's in the eastern hemisphere? How are they going to see him in the western hemisphere? Well, maybe he'll descend so slowly that the earth will rotate underneath him once. Maybe there will be a supernatural miracle in which anybody, wherever they are, can look up and he's right there, even though the next guy is here and he looks up and he's right there. I don't know. But it's something unmistakable. It says, Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man. What's it say? What's the phrase? Coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Go back to Daniel chapter 9. Remember that? Or Daniel chapter 7. I was watching in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Acts chapter 1, when Jesus went up on the clouds, the angel says, why do you stand there looking like country bumpkins? Jesus is going to come back the same way he went up, and he went up through the clouds. So this is anticipating his return as predicted in Daniel chapter 7. Now, verse 31, this is really important. He will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. It's the rapture. No, it's not. It's not the rapture. Okay? Let me tell you why it's not. Okay? First of all, and this is kind of a theological argument, it will not be until the book of 1 Corinthians is written that the events called the rapture will be told to the church. Paul will say, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is something previously concealed that is now revealed. But there are more important reasons why this is not the rapture. Okay? First of all, if you study the rapture, there's never anything in the rapture about angels gathering people. Okay? Nothing about angels gathering people. It says Christ descends from heaven with the spirits of those who have died in Christ. They will receive their resurrection bodies and then we who are alive on the earth will be caught up together with them. Okay? There's no description of the agency of angels. Furthermore, and this is probably the most important thing, Old Testament prophecy predicts over and over and over again that when Messiah sets up his kingdom, he will gather the scattered people of Israel from wherever they are all the way, all over the world and bring them back to Jerusalem. Now, I'm going to cite some verses to you. These will be in your notes, and this is for the benefit of the people who are listening to the tape. Isaiah 11 uh, verse 12, Jeremiah 29, 12-14, Deuteronomy 33, 4 and 5, Jeremiah 23, 2-8. And there may be another one. But all of those passages picture the regathering of the scattered people of Israel back to Jerusalem, and they're going to be regathered so that they can pass under the rod of the covenant, which we'll see later in Matthew 25. Steve. Absolutely. It says they're all going to come back. That's right. Um, it, it pictures that you know Jeru- uh, it pictures Israel as a bunch of bones that are scattered, and they're all going to come together. And that's exactly what the what the prophets predict: that the people will be brought back from wherever they happen to be on the earth to Jerusalem. They will be separated into two groups. The unbelievers will be executed on the spot and the believers will enter the kingdom, meaning they will spread out over Israel and they will live under the reign of Messiah. Okay? This is not the rapture. In, in your notes that you'll get next week, that's probably laid out a little more carefully. Now I want to push on just so I can get through the end of chapter 25. We're going to move really fast, but you'll see that it's quite doable. The toughest part is really the next four verses. Verse 32. Now learn this parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near. Your Bible may say he, but it is really better at the very doors. Now the reason I say it's it is because the disciples' question was, when will, how will we know that it, meaning your second coming, and the end of the age is near? 
He says, well, I just gave you three sequences of signs that lead up to the end, right? I took you through the whole tribulation. I took you through the second half of the tribulation. I took you through the days leading right up to the second coming. Now, the whole purpose of this argument was so that a future generation living on earth at that time could track these signs and know that the second coming was approaching. Now, the parable in 32 and 33 is very simple. It says, you know something about agriculture. You know that when a cherry tree puts out its blossoms, pretty soon there are going to be cherries on it. So if you see the blossoms, what do you know? They're going to be cherries. If you see this sequence of events coming, what do you know? You know, the second coming is almost here. Now, unfortunately, a lot of premillennial expositors took this parable, verses 32 and 33, and turned it into an allegory. And they said that the fig tree represents Jerusalem, and 1948 represents the budding of the tree. And within one generation, we'll get to that in the next two verses, or in the next verse, within one generation of 1948, the nation, of the, the, the rapture must occur or the second coming must occur. Look at verse 34. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all things are fulfilled. They took verses 32 and 33, turned them into an allegory, attached verse 34 to them, and said, within one generation of 1948, Christ will come back. Or in some cases, they argued the rapture would happen. So in 1968, there are all kinds of evangelical Christians expecting the rapture. Didn't happen. 1978, they're waiting again. Didn't happen. From then on, it's mostly kooks. In 1988, there were a bunch of Korean believers who thought that the rapture was going to happen. 1998, again. Now, what's wrong with that is that verses 32 and 33 are not an allegory. They have nothing to do with the birth of the modern nation of Israel. The modern nation of Israel could get pushed into the Mediterranean Ocean and we could wait another thousand years until the events that are predicted here actually unwind. I doubt it's going to happen, but it could happen. Okay. And furthermore, verse 34 is not linked to verses 32 and 33 in such a way to say that when the modern state of Israel occurs, the rapture has to happen within a generation. And people said, well, a generation is 20 years. Hmm, that didn't work. Must be 30 years. That didn't work. 40 years? That's getting pretty long. 50 years? That makes sense. What verse 34 is about is what verse 22 is about. Take a look at that. What does verse 22 say? Unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. The point of verse 34 is that when the tribulation begins... God will make sure that that generation won't die off. They will survive to the end, and the events that must come at the end of this period will be fulfilled. Can you see it? you see it? This generation will by no means pass away until all these things are fulfilled. God will not let the tribulation generation die off. Everything will happen exactly as it's laid out. Now, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. That's Jesus' way of saying it. it's going to happen the way I say it's going to happen. Now, you flip over immediately to verse 36, which, which we just looked at. If you read verse 36 after reading 32 through 35, it reads very differently, doesn't it? Verse 36, 
of that day and hour, no one knows. The point is not this event of which I'm speaking is unpredictable. The second coming is highly predictable. It's predictable for those who live to see these signs unfolding. All he's saying is, while you can look at the, you know, the sequence that leads up to the end, I've told you what the sequence is, don't think that you can predict the date, the day to the date, I'm sorry, predict the date down to the day and hour. Don't be so foolish as to think you can fiddle around because you know the second coming is still two weeks away. And now what's he going to say after this? He's going to say, a smart person who knows that I'm coming back is going to do what? He's going to what? Be prepared. Okay? Be prepared by do by what? By serving the master faithfully until he gets back. Okay? Okay, what did I do wrong? No, no, you didn't do anything wrong. You said 36 was seemed like it was out of place. No, no, I don't think... I, I said that when people yank it out of place... Oh, okay. Okay, and use it to argue that the rapture is unpredictable, they've butchered the argument because the entire argument of the chapter is they said, how will we know when this thing is going to happen? And Jesus tells them three ways to know when it's going to happen. So the point... No, 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 I don't want to do that. So the point of verse 36 is you'll know when it's coming, but don't be so foolish as to think you can predict it to the day and the hour. And the reason he doesn't want them to think that is that he doesn't want them to be lazy or think, well, I'll get saved tomorrow because I know Jesus isn't going to be back today. Now, that, that would just be stupid. Now, as Bruce noted, uh, the Lord now moves on to the discussion of the days of Noah. And we need to look at this because this is also often argued to be a description of the rapture, but it's not. Verse 37, As the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now in context, the coming of the Son of Man is the second coming, right? It's not the rapture. Now look what he says. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Now, a lot of people look at verses 40 and 41 and they say it's describing the rapture. Because some will be taken and others will be left. What's that? I know. It's very common. But look at it. In the description of the t- days of Noah, who were the ones who got taken? It's the unbelievers who get taken away by the flood and they drown. They're not the ones who get rescued. They're the ones who get killed. Okay? This isn't about the rapture. This is about the judgments that will occur immediately after Christ returns. And his point is, you don't want to be one of the fools who thinks that everything's going to keep on going like it was. You want to be the one of the, one of the ones, if you happen to be on earth during that generation, who sees the sequence of signs unfolding and says, the Lord is coming back. I want to get right with the Lord and I want to serve him until he gets here. Because if you're not, you're going to be one of the ones who gets taken in judgment. Mary. Mm-hmm. Sure. Everything's going on as normal. And I've always and, the time of Charles, right. 
how can that describe this time period? Well, even sure, or even this time period. Okay, I'll answer that question for you. It's a great question for those of you who are listening on the tape. The question is, in the days of Noah, people were acting like everything was normal, marrying, giving in marriage, etc. Jesus seems to be picturing the same thing occurring all the way up to the time of his second coming, but we know that the seven-year tribulation is going to be a time of calamity and suffering and hardship on earth. The answer is, that there will at least be a class of people on earth during the tribulation who are living high on the hog and doing better than they ever did before. Um, if you read Revelation chapter 18, which describes what's called um, Babylon the Great, I think it is, it's a description of the commercial system that exists during the second half of the tribulation, a system that is made very powerful by Antichrist's insistence that everybody take the mark of the beast and nobody can do business unless they take the mark of the beast and bow to him. It will put enormous power in the hands of the few who follow him and serve him. Actually, it's not going to be a few. It's going to be a lot. And those people are going to be filthy rich. They're going to have every pleasure, every delight that they want. Um, you know, the human slavery is going to be common. And those people, when God destroys their system right before the second coming, they're not going to be wailing saying, oh no, God is coming for us. They're going to be saying, oh no, my portfolio just went down the drain. And you can actually read that in Revelation 18. Those guys are the ones who shorted the stock. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So, so Mary, to, to answer your question, there will be many on earth, even during this time, who, because of their association with Antichrist, you know, think of a corrupt government and the people who participate in it, who are going to be doing very, very well. And I won't say any more than that. Okay. So, Jesus says in verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, or what day, depending on what your text says. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Now again, he's not saying that it's not predictable. He's saying that it's not exactly predictable. And the point is that if you happen to be on earth during this time period, and none of us will, if our belief that the rapture comes first is true, if you happen to be one of those people who get saved after the rapture, then you'd be an utter fool to do anything but get right with God through faith in Jesus Christ and furiously begin to serve him. Because he's about to come back and he will judge you when you get when he gets back. Okay? Now, we're not going to get to the sheep and the goats judgment, but let me talk very quickly. We've got three minutes left and that will be enough. We've got three parables here. The first parable is verse 45 down through 51. The parable of the faithful servant and the evil servant. The point of that parable is simply that a smart servant will serve his master continuously because he knows he's coming back and he knows he may not know exactly when he's coming back. Only a fool says, well, I'm going to party for the next week because the master's not due back until two weeks because he might show up early. Okay, that's the point of that parable. 
Then we have the parable of the wise and foolish virgins in chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. The basic purpose of that parable is to argue even those who long for the return of Christ can flub up by not being continuously ready. Now, I wouldn't push it any farther than that. I think both sets of virgins are ones who are anticipating his coming, but one set of virgins is diligently making sure that they're ready day or night, and the other set is kind of, you know, being lazy. Jesus says, you don't want to be one of the lazy ones. And we don't need to push this any further and say that the ones who are being lazy are going to go to hell or anything like that, because it's a parable, and that's not what it teaches. It just illustrates the point that if you're anticipating the master, you want to be among those who are making the effort to be ready day and night, all the time. Okay? It's kind of like when I worked on an island off the coast of, of uh, New Hampshire, seven miles off the coast. We had to be our own fire department because we had a four-story Victorian hotel that was made out of nothing but wood. And we had fire drills in the middle of the night, and it was my job to call them. And everybody would complain. But one night, somebody threw a cigarette butt in a trash can, and fortunately, there was a patrol out that saw it, and we got the crew out, and we stopped the hotel from burning down. The only way you can do that is to be ready all the time. And that's kind of the point that's being made here. The parable of the talents... I think the point of that parable is that if you are a servant of the Messiah, and this could apply to us, and he entrusts you with something, you should be a good steward of it because the reward that he will give you when he comes back depends on how good a steward you are of what he's given to you. Now, that this parable is very nice because it's applicable to us as well as it's applicable to anybody who would get saved during this period of time and be on earth when Christ comes back. Okay? All three of those parables basically say the same thing. You know your master is coming back. Don't be a fool and not prepare for it. And that leaves us with the sheep and the goats judgment in verses 31 to 46, and I think we won't go there. We'll do that next week. Okay? Questions? It's a lot of material, isn't it? But this, you know, well, and, 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 and Bob, you know, if I'm giving the impression that I think I'm the smart guy and I've overturned all the theories of other people, don't, 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 don't get that. Well, well, but what I'm trying to say is this. There have been some corrections in the past couple of decades to some of the teachings that were being given out by premillennialists, particularly in the frenzied years following 1948. Well, yeah, yeah, I know, and I wasn't a believer yet. So that stuff is mostly, you know, I only know it from, from what I hear. But a consistent understanding of the teachings of Scripture on the rapture in particular strongly suggest that we shouldn't be seeing it here. And I think reading this in context, particularly with the stuff that we've looked at in the Old Testament, shows that everything that's here can be understood within a premillennial scheme based on the Old Testament without the hypothesis of the rapture, with no difficulty. 
And I think if you go back and study, you'll see that, that it really works better that way. The problem is if you try to read the rapture into this, you create more problems than you solve. And, and I don't think it's there. Okay, Mary? That's right. It happened before we get out of this room tonight, couldn't it? Yes. And 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 it's good that you brought that up because if you look in the epistles, you know, Paul will say repeatedly, be ready now. The only way, way to be ready is to be al- always ready, right? So the fact the fact that we're not going to live during this future time period does not in any way remove our motivation to serve Christ in a godly way because we're building up eternal reward. Every day that we are on earth is an opportunity to serve him and glorify him. And, you know, I, I don't want to be caught with my pants down when the rapture happens. You know, I, I hope I'm not doing something sinful and embarrassing when it happens. I mean, that would be kind of sad, wouldn't it? Um, but... You know, really, every piece of life is an opportunity to serve him, isn't it? And so the, the imminence of the rapture, or imminency, depending on how you say it, is really a strong motivation to godly living, isn't it? Yeah. All right, let's pray and let's go home. Father, thank you for so much that you've revealed to us about your future plan. Thank you that it is orderly and it's purposeful and above all that we can see that you never make promises carelessly and you never cast them by the wayside and you never ask us to forget about something that you promised. Thank you, Father, that you are utterly faithful. We do ask that you would teach us to be more faithful and more diligent. Please give us your protection as we go home. Please protect our health through the week. Please give us opportunity and the desire to serve you and please you and to represent you well before the unbelievers we may be meeting in the days ahead. Thank you in your son's name.